Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. Lloyd Auerbach is a world-recognized paranormal expert parapsychologist based in the U.S. with thousands of media appearances. He holds a master's degree in parapsychology from John F. Kennedy University. He's the co-author of the new paranormal mystery novel called Near Death, A Rainy Day Investigation, and the author or co-author of nine paranormal books, including Psychic Dreaming, Mind Over Matter, ESP Wars East and West, The Ghost Detective's Guide to Haunted San Francisco, and the classic ESP Hauntings and Poltergeists. He is the president of the Forever Family Foundation since 2013 and director of the Office of Paranormal Investigations since 1989. Lloyd teaches parapsychology courses online through the Rhine Education Center and is an adjunct professor of Atlantic, JFK, and national universities. He is vice president of the board of directors of the Rhine Research Center and serves on the advisory board of the Winbridge Research Center. He is also a past president of the Psychic Entertainers Association. Besides all of that, he performs as professional mentalist, Professor Paranormal, and occasionally as a professional chocolatier. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lloyd, where we discuss channeling, mediumship, and a fascinating study about the power of intention. Hi, Lloyd. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Tanya. Appreciate it. So you have uh, extensive experience with parapsychological investigations, as well as teaching. You actually teach uh, online classes through the Rhine Education Center, is that right? That is correct. Yeah, it's uh, the education arm of the Rhine Research Center, which is the longest running research lab in parapsychology in the United States. With our conversation today, I just wanted to say I'm coming at this from direct experience. For two years, I've had various psi type of experiences occurring on a regular basis um, that I'm still trying to reconcile, to be honest. So for me, I'm leaning a lot more towards the evidence that there's something beyond us, whatever you want to call it, chi, Mm -hmm. prana, what have you. Parapsychology has done a really great job of identifying the psychological and environmental factors that can account for some of these experiences. In other words, people have often misinterpreted or misidentified phenomena. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's uh, people do have coincidence. There are those things that happen in our life that are explainable. And especially when people are labeling things you know, in what's called the paranormal, you know, world, uh, ghosts and hauntings and things like that, people make even more mistakes. But we do have experiences that are sensory or even intuitive that are not necessarily psychic. So then what is the difference between intuition and psychic? Well, um, first, I should say that the word intuition got really grouped in with psychics and psychic experience back in the 70s, mainly because a lot of psychics, practitioners who were actually consulting with business and other arenas, felt that the word psychic as a as a label for someone had too much baggage. So they started calling themselves intuitives. And from that, the word intuition started getting applied to psychic phenomena as well. But from a parapsychologist perspective, Intuition is based on information you have in your head somewhere. 
Um, it may be buried deep in your memory. It might have been something you've encountered. We have a huge amount of information that we don't even realize we have based on all the chatter around us in restaurants and the things the TV and the radio in the background as we're growing up and the stuff we've read. So when you have different disparate bits of information coming together, that can lift, lead to a creative leap, which is considered intuition. It can also be based on your senses picking up something in the environment and attributing that to something psychic, even though you're not aware. It's subliminal. It's, it's below the conscious sensory range. So psychic or psi would be those situations in which that may be happening or not, but there's information that you could not possibly have known, observations you could not possibly have made with your normal senses. That's psychic. That's ESP. Okay. Yeah, it's because there's a lot of language with this field. and Totally. I, uh, yeah, trying to trying to understand uh, <laughs> what it all means. So, so psychokinesis, what's that? Psychokinesis is the term for action by the mind. So, if you think of information, extrasensory perception, perception is information. Psychokinesis is interaction. It's how our mind directly interacts with the world around us, with our with matter and energy the physical world around us. And that would be without the use of our normal hands, tools, things like that. That would be psychokinesis. Although in some respects, extraordinary human performance, pushing beyond the limits of what the human body is supposed to be able to do, may in fact also be psychokinesis. And certainly self-healing is a form of psychokinesis, as is psychosomatic illness. Yeah, I was going to ask about the healing aspect. Of mm -hmm having been trained in medical qigong then that's something that really intrigues me okay so i think i understand yeah yeah energy medicine anytime where our minds are are manipulating something directly uh that would be considered psychokinesis or pk and it's not just moving objects there's a whole range of things and healing is a big part of what we study for this tell me more have you witnessed energetic healing sessions I've had a couple of uh, Reiki sessions on me, which were mm -hmm. very positive. Um, I haven't done my own research in the processes of energetic healing, but I do know from the research that has been done in controlled studies that there's a lot of evidence for local and also distant healing that's been done. I also have spoken to doctors who have worked with healers who have had extraordinary results with working with the healer in certain circumstances. And then the Rhine Center is actually doing research or has been doing research on bio, what's called bioenergy, which is the actual detectable photons we give off, uh, particles of light, we give off very little low level particles of light per second. Uh, and in a lab that has been created there at the Rhine with a research grant, they are studying how healers and martial artists and some other folks have been able to increase the output dramatically when they're doing their thing, their energy work uh, in this type of study compared to what's normal. Right. Now, is, is the photons, is that related to seeing auras? Probably not. Um, you know, the aura thing is a little bit interesting because it likely is not a visual thing. It's not actually probably happening with our eyes. Uh, there certainly couldn't, couldn't be because of the biophotons. You'd have to increase more than anyone has ever increased to have a glow of any kind that would be visible. And it wouldn't be the, the person receiving or seeing the aura. It would be the person putting out the aura that would have to do that. So we think that the aura is 
when people see auras that that is likely a perceptual i won't call it illusion because it's really something perceptual you know the thing to remember is our perception and our senses are different data comes in from the the senses and the perceptual process makes sense of that and if you get information through the psychic process that can be added to your perceptual process and it could seem like you're seeing something or hearing something when there's not really anything optical or auditory to pick up so with auras it may be that those people are sensitive to to perceiving the magnetic fields or the fields around people's bodies which are present uh, it's just that their brains turn that into colors so that's the perceptual process Okay. I haven't really heard it uh, explained that way. So that, that really helps. Your book, Reincarnation, Channeling and Possession. I mm -hmm. read it. I loved it. It was Thank such you. an interesting read. This book was a uh, part of three books under a subtitle of the Parapsychologist Handbook. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The first three books that I wrote. Right. And the other one was Psychic Dreaming? Psychic Dreaming, which has been uh, kind of reformatted and reissued in 2017 by Llewellyn. And the first ESP Hauntings and Poltergeists, which I republished in 2016 as kind of a 30th anniversary edition. So the main connection, though, with the first book, with the reincarnation, is that uh, reincarnation channeling and possession, you say all three involve the human spirit or the consciousness. Correct. Right. Because right. you were trying to connect the three, even though at, at first glance it might not appear that there is much of a connection Right. And, and with channeling, we're really talking about a very specific subset of channeling, which is mediumship, uh, because as you know, channeler, people who call themselves channelers channel, not just human beings, when they channel all sorts of crazy things sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I say crazy in the sense of, in a creative sense, not in the insane sense. <laughs> no, no, I hear you. Yeah. Let's break down the mediumship and the channeling, because I think there's some listeners that might not be familiar with That's the true. distinction. Okay, so mediumship versus channeling. So channeling is the idea that we consciously or unconsciously bring in information in personalities that are either from the outside, which would include mediumship. So mediumship is a subset of channeling. But also channeling is applied to, people have talked about channeling ancient Atlanteans and dolphin spirits and aliens. A lot of aliens have come through, um, supposedly. And uh, mediumship is focused on almost confirmable uh, people who are were actual people. We cannot confirm the identity of any of those ancient beings or any aliens or or animal spirits. There's just no way to do that. Channeling is also applied, however, to channeling your higher self. So think of it as our creative self, a part of our unconscious. So it's it's kind of a, a broader term that goes back, way back when people used to channel the gods as well. Uh, and technically prophets uh, of, of God would be channeling God in that way. So mediumship specifically refers to play, situations in which a person is an intermediary. So that's where the word medium comes from, uh, from intermediary between the spirit world and our physical world. Um, that term was mostly popularized in the 19th century when spiritualism itself got started and spread across the world. And some mediums actually channel in the sense that they let spirit come into them. Other mediums are, and a lot of mediums today, don't actually do trance or don't have uh, kind of the channeling experience but they do channel information because they're experiencing perceiving some spirit who's then giving them information that they're putting out 
what comes to mind when I think of mediumship and channeling, especially before I had somewhat of direct experience with it. I'm not a medium or a channeler by, mm -hmm. by any stretch, but I've had spontaneous experiences. So what first comes to mind is how much of my own ego and my personality and my perceptions can step, step aside enough to objectively transmit information. Yeah. And that, you know, we talk about mediumship in that or channeling in that way, typically the person goes into an altered state of consciousness. That's where the whole idea of trance mediumship comes from. Uh, most mediums today don't do that. But essentially, altered states of consciousness can allow us to step aside from our, you know, purely conscious ideas um, from that personality we've got. And whether that lets through an alternate spirit uh, or entity or whether that actually brings up information that your unconscious creates is the hard question. So we often look, and we do this when we study mediums, in fact, we look at not just are you giving me facts and figures? Because that comes through in mediumship. That actually rarely came through in channeling. A lot, most of the channelers gave advice. And uh, we're talking about, in the, especially in the 80s, which is the kind of the height of channeling, the channeling phenomenon. They give advice. They didn't really give you any hard information at all. And it wasn't always useful information or advice. It was kind of platitudes, a lot of it. Some of them gave some really good creative advice. And some of the mediums uh, would do the same thing. But then we have evidential mediums who can provide not just facts and figures, which is much more than what most channelers can do, but also can give a real sense of personality that is not their own and even describe what or act like the person that you knew when they were alive. I've had experiences. I've had a lot of mediumship readings. Um, once I got over my fear that this could actually be real. Um, mm -hmm. And once I did, I mean, and the I was so fortunate to have a few mediums, which is interesting. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But um, the evidential information that a good medium can provide you is just really can be life changing because really, how can they know those specific things about that discarnate personality that right. only you know? And now I know that this kind of can go into the topic of super psi where right are, uh, reading right. reading me you know and interpreting as though a discarnate person is giving that information yeah within our field there is i mean there's basically a philosophical difference um amongst parapsychologists and generally in the world i mean uh, there are materialists who basically look at us as biological machines and there's flavors of materialism, of course, and materialism would suggest or say says that when we die, we die. There is no spirit. There is no consciousness that survives death. There's none of that. On the other side, you have a spectrum of beliefs, which can be encapsulated under the term dualism, where it suggests that mind or consciousness and body are not the same thing. Uh, mind is in body. Consciousness is in body when we're alive, but, but many dualists believe that consciousness can survive in it in its entirety or as a personality after death some don't uh, but within our field we've got this idea of is the information from a medium or in an apparition experience with a ghost is that coming because of esp information that the person is either receiving and then creating kind of, kind of giving a clothing to giving a costume to, an identity to, or is this coming from an actual external communication? And it's not 
easy necessarily to figure this out, but it boils down to situations where we haven't seen in general the kind of quality of information, especially about behavior and personality of this deceased person in regular ESP experiences. And mediums, many mediums do both psychic readings where they can give facts and figures, read the person psychically, but then they can also apparently speak to someone who's deceased. And there's more than just facts and figures. It's more than um, just external observations of the person. There's a lot of feel to it. And the mediums clearly delineate those two different things, that the psychic reading doesn't feel the same to them as does the mediumistic reading, the mediumistic experience. And research, recent research with brain studies of mediums has shown that there are different parts of the brain that are active. I've heard that some EEG information or results shows a daydream state when the medium is reading. Except that it's a different state, different EEGs than if the person is doing, is making up a reading. Mm, okay. It's, it's trying to fake it. And there have been some subsequent studies that are used with fMRI looking at the active areas of the brain. And the brain activity is different for having a conversation, pretending to do something, psychic readings, mediumistic readings. Not in relation to mediums, but when you're talking about uh, brain studies, it actually reminds me of the psychedelic studies have been giving mm -hmm. a lot of interesting results. Eben Alexander, neurosurgeon, he with the, who had an NDE, he right. actually writes about it in his book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And I, when I first heard it, I was quite floored. I'll just tell you briefly. He basically cited three psychedelic studies, all separate, doing functional MRI and very sensitive neuroimaging tools that they were using. And they were testing LSD, ayahuasca, and psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And all three studies separately came to the same conclusion that the more the psychedelic experience, the more it increased in the brain, the more the brain shut down rather than showing heightened activity. Which itself is really interesting because if the activity in your experience is increased in those situations and your brain is shutting down, what in the world is going on? Well, that's the thing. And he also pointed out that the researchers themselves didn't know what to make of the implication of that. Sure. They really had a hard time actually admitting to what they were looking at with the results. Well, sadly, as as Eben talks about in his first book, Proof of Heaven, mm -hmm. uh, when he had, talked about his own extensive uh, illness, brain illness, and then extensive NDE, uh, he points, because he was a, he's a neurosurgeon and neuroscientist, and he pointed out how that was almost against his experience, I mean, his beliefs, because many people in, in mainstream science are materialists. They don't believe that there's anything more to the brain than the brain. So when you have a bunch of scientists doing research on activity in the brain who are not considering that consciousness is bigger than the brain or different than the brain or can function without the brain, then they, can't, they don't know what to make of that kind of thing. When you have someone like Eben Alexander, who has a, a really impactful near-death experience where there's, to him, based on what was going on in his brain, in his, in his body, because of his illness, there was no other possible explanation. But his approach, his interpretation, his beliefs about the human body and the human brain belied that whole 
experience and said that that's not possible. He knew that this isn't this is really possible. Too many folks in mainstream science are pure materialists. We even have some in parapsychology for that matter. And the idea that there could be something more just doesn't occur to them because they put it out of their mind, their own minds. So these scientists who did the studies, hallucinogenics, would not have, probably wouldn't have occurred to them to look beyond the brain, which left them not coming up with an explanation at all. Right. But had they had they considered that consciousness can be or is more than or potentially more than the brain, then you open up a lot of different possibilities. Eben's NDE was definitely, I mean, that was such a robust experience and so much has come out of it. And thank goodness he has the language and the science Correct. And to be able to connect the two worlds. I mean, I, I just think it's wonderful. There are, there are others who are doing consciousness research, not so much about NDEs, but just in general, looking at consciousness as being much more than the brain or different than brain, um, who are in the neurosciences, in physics, in other areas as well. And, you know, there are, they have a lot of pushback because materialism is the thing. That's the basis of mainstream science, empiric, rational empiricism, materialism, the idea that consciousness might be different or more just is beyond that base function, that base belief. People have to face their own beliefs and their mm -hmm. own mortality and the implications of what the reality of consciousness and what it truly is can really shake a person up. It can. Uh, it also may not affect people's interactions at all. Uh, it really mm -hmm. depends on on how strongly their and I have to use the word faith here, what, mm -hmm. how strong their faith happens to be, and this is the way the world works, and that's it. There's a lot, you know. There's a, a large number of people in science who, at least overtly, uh, you know, in their public face, do not believe that you know it's anything more than this material universe. That's it. That's all. Uh, and part of that is a reaction to religion. Uh, no question. But part of it is the culture of science itself, that if you even acknowledge that you might think that this is possible, you could be a pariah in your department at the university, or you could actually have problems with your colleagues. And that has actually happened, um, both for ideas about consciousness and actually ideas about, certainly ideas about parapsychology and interest in that subject. And unfortunately, that culture of science, some of them don't accept anything outside of what they already know or what science knows. You know, there seems to be this um, idea that science is a static, monolithic dogma. It's dogmatic and new things have to be explained away, regardless of what field they come from. We see that when ideas that do seem to challenge even the, the smallest piece of biology or physics or some other area, and we're not talking about anything psychic or consciousness related, but new ideas, new theories come in, try to explain things. And there's always pushback from a lot of people. And honestly, some of that has to do with research funds too. Right. It gets political. Yeah, it does. It does. Let's maybe jump over to possession only because we know that sometimes misinterpretation can also be a result of possibly some underlying emotional issues. Well, there's that. First, I want to say that technically, from an anthropological perspective, um, channeling is possession. Okay. And many, many cultures around the world, people 
in their rituals and their religion and their magical beliefs allow the gods to speak through them or allow spirits of the dead to come into them or allow nature spirits or elementals to speak through them or to jump into their bodies. Technically, from an anthropological perspective, that's possession. We think of possession differently because of religion, where the word possession is typically a forced entry, you might say, versus a welcome entry on the channeling and mediumship front. Um, and that's actually what one of the mediums I knew actually said, that she said that um, essentially possession, if possession happens, and she was not convinced it did, uh, from a forced perspective, it would be someone forcing themselves upon you as opposed to you saying, hey, come on in situation. Was that Kathy Reardon? That was Kathy Reardon, right. Right. Okay. I remember that. Yeah. I actually made a note of that because <laughs> yeah. I, I liked how she described the distinction. Yeah. And most mediums, though, you talk to, including Kathy, would say that if somebody did push their way in, you know, as far, and I asked her and I asked other mediums, what if that actually happens? And a lot of them will call that a drop in because when they say that, because the person has jumped in without permission. But they all say, all I need to do to get rid of it is to say, get out very oh, strongly. That's it. That's it. Because, <laughs> because they, they know that they have more power. We have more power as the living than the dead do or the disembodied do. On the misinterpretation front, you know, there are levels of what people will call possession. Um, you know, I, we were joking before the, the show here about the fact that I've gotten a lot of calls over the years from parents who thought their teenagers were possessed. Right. <laughs> and, and actually, they would describe their child as possessed. And when I started asking questions about the child's behavior, I would then say, so 14 or 15 years old, what are, what are we dealing with? And, you know, we could kiddingly say that teenagers are possessed in a completely different way. It's their hormones and other things that are going on. It's puberty that's possessing them. But from a, you know, we talk about the word possession in a religious context. Um, we really haven't seen, number one, any any evidence for demonic possession or even the existence of demonic beings. We haven't seen that. Um, so in our field, uh, we do have cases where people think or behave as if they are possessed or start talking as if they are possessed. But typically those really intense cases tend to be psychological, uh, strongly psychological. And there's a whole middle ground here. And that's where people think they're possessed because, and I've had these calls from adults, they think they're possessed because things are not going right in their life or um, their relationships are screwed up because the person is acting differently towards them, like there's something wrong with them, not the other person. There's any number of things that happen. and a lot of that is just simply, I hate to say wishful thinking, but it's wishful thinking. I want to blame it on somebody else. Um, this is not me. This is someone else who's making me act this way or making you see me act this way or making things go wrong in my life. It's the whole idea of why people sometimes think they have a curse on them or psychically attacked. There is this area that's called um, spirit attachment that many people, many practitioners talk about. And, and I've come to think that um, this is certainly happening, but not in, in a way that we would call it possession at all. Um, there are traditions in which, uh, various traditions around the world, including religious traditions, where a spirit, a disturbed spirit, so someone who has died, talking about a person, not talking about a demon, person who has died, has not moved on, 
And if that person had particular psychological issues when they were alive or addictions when they were alive, let's say alcoholic or, or, um, or narcotics or drug addicts, they will find someone who has similar traits to them so that they, they can kind of have a, um, a visceral experience of, you know, experiencing it through you, so to speak, through observing uh, that, per observing the living. And if that, drug addict or neurotic person finds someone who's alive, who's neurotic or is a drug addict, and they just kind of glom onto that person, they're not jumping in, but their presence, it's co it almost becomes a codependency. So you end up with the spirit. This is the, the concept of spirit attachment. The spirit attaches to you or sticks with you. And it, because that person is there, that spirit is there and has that same negative quality that you do, it kind of exacerbates your own negative quality. It's it's supporting the negativity in many respects. And heightens and, it. And heightens it quite a bit, yeah. So it's not possession, but it could make things worse. Um, apparently there are spirit attachments where things get better too, because happy spirits apparently attach to happy people. Well, that's and, good. <laughs> yeah, uh, but there's a, there's a technique that is taught in hypnotherapy by a lot of people. Um, one of the schools I taught at, which was a primarily hypnotherapy school, they teach spirit releasement therapy, which is a hypnosis process. They put the person under, they have the person while unconscious, while in a hypnotic state, um, they bring through the spirit. In other words, they have the spirit, the hypno hypnotized person speak to the spirit directly. And it's a separation process to move that spirit on. Whether there's a spirit there or not, the person may believe that there is. And that works wonders for people. And it actually starts the person on, on a healing path for whatever it was that they are blaming on this or they think is connected to the spirit. It sounds similar to the shamanistic version of soul retrieval, mm -hmm. right? So yep. Same idea, different process, different language, but. Yeah. Hmm. There, there, there's something to be said. I mean, let's face it. A lot of psychology in terms of therapy is a form of ritual. Right. And there are different schools of psychological thought and they all approach that ritual differently or the, the process of interaction differently. So we and we have rituals in many other arenas of our lives, in fact. So the, the idea of shamanic rituals being primitive or or wrong or magical you know, I, I can honestly just point to that and say, how is that different from the giving of communion and drinking of wine in a Catholic mass? Exactly. It's it's all religious uh, or it's all ritual. It's the act. It's the intention that is important. You know, we hear about people all the time. I, I get people saying, well, there's some bad energy in my house. I just bought this house. It feels bad. It, should I smudge it with sage? Well, they can do that. but unless you have the intention behind it to do something about that bad energy, the sage is just going to make your house smell. That's something we talked about again. And when I was trained in medical Qigong, uh -huh. you know, the difference between there's a difference between traditional Chinese medicine and classical Chinese medicine, which is where Qigong falls under. And the difference is the intention. Yes. And so, that's, a, that's psychokinesis, you know, interacting with energy is psychokinesis. Um, right. And we have to have that intention behind whatever act it happens to be. If you don't have, because I've had people tell me that they've, they've had a priest come over and bless their house. And they smudged their house. And they've done X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, when you smudged the house, what were you doing? What were you thinking? It's like, mm -hmm. well, I was just thinking, I was just 
lighting this, or just walking around smudging it. It's like, okay, that, that's not a surprise that nothing happened. Right. <laughs> my teacher, actually, my Qigong teacher, he tells wonderful stories. And he tried to say that if you have a car, that's a lemon. Yeah. And he attributes it to the person putting it together was having a really bad day. Correct. That is possible. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, we have had studies, a couple studies by Dean Radin and others in the field of parapsychology looking at food. You know, we have this folklore that food made with love is good for you. You know, this is the whole grandmother chicken soup thing, right? Yeah. So a number of years ago, um, Dean was, con Dean spoke to uh, a Hawaiian chocolate company and they devised a pilot study uh, in which they had samples of chocolate. Chocolate is a mood enhancer. We know that. And there are, you can actually do studies on, and there have been many studies on the mood enhancing qualities of chocolate. There's a, there are mood surveys that you can do. There are a number of things that have been done. Chocolate's the most complex food, food substance on the planet. It's one of my other areas of something I know a lot about at this point. You're a, you're a chocolatier. That's why. And I'm also a chocolatier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll I've studied that this. After. <laughs> I've studied this. So, wow. um, so Dean, Dean had them, you know, put together a, a pack, basically a batch of chocolate uh, made from Hawaiian cacao beans. Uh, they make great chocolate. And it was separated into four, four, four parcels. One of the parcels or samples of chocolate was uh, prayed over by B Buddhist monks at a monastery that's right next to the cacao field that the guy had. And when they prayed over it, they put an intention. The idea was to put intention into the into the chocolate. The intention was this sample of chocolate will be more energizing and will enhance your mood more than anything else you've ever had. He then also had, as it happened, a Mongolian shaman doing a workshop at the Institute of Noetic Sciences the week that he was doing setting this all up. So he had the Mongolian shaman do a ritual over the one sample of chocolate. Same intention. There was also a, an engineer who has been around consciousness studies and claims that he had some device that could record intention. So he had the, the device with a Buddhist monk with the same intention being programmed into the circuit. And then the chocolate was placed in an isolation room with the circuit playing the intention over and over again. The chocolate, and that was the way they got that sample. And then there was a fourth sample that was just a control sample, had no intention placed over it. This was sent out randomly, uh, and Dean had no idea who was getting it to, um, I think it was 62 or 63 people eventually in the pilot study. And they were told, they were given little packets, and for several days, they were to, at 10 a.m. and 3 p.m., they had to take a break for chocolate. They had to eat the chocolate slowly and think about how they felt. And right before each, each sample of chocolate that they ate, they had to fill out a mood survey. And then after, they had to fill out a mood survey. So with all the data that came back, it turned out that, and Dean did not know who got what, but he saw very clear difference, a huge difference between one sample, one group of samples of chocolate and three others. And when he, he, he told me that when he first saw that huge difference, he said, if, if the one that's on the low end is not the, the control group, I don't know what we're going to do. It was the control group, actually. And I mean, it turned out if there was a 67%, uh, like a really big significant difference with that chocolate, with the intention placed into it. And a similar study was done a couple of years later with tea. Same results. So the idea that a car built by somebody in a bad mood might have something wrong with it, it's possible. I it's, think you know, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, it also could be that, you know, I hate to say this, but it also could be the guy who having a bad day may have screwed up in the way he put the car together. That's true. That's true. It, there's always other possibilities. I just wanted to go back to a couple of things. When it comes to energy and people's moods, poltergeist activity. That's something yeah. interesting that I actually learned a lot about in reading parapsychology work. Yeah, so poltergeist, which is um, unfortunately had a renaissance of its um, de original definition because of the ghost hunting community that doesn't know any better. Um, you know, the word was coined at least as far back in the 16th century, and it literally translates to noisy or mischievous ghost. Actually, the rapping ghost is what it really translates to right. from German. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, words change their meaning, and we always have to remember that words can change their meaning. The word computer does not mean the same thing as it did in World War II at all. Right. Computer, computers were people back <laughs> in World War II. So what the word poltergeist refers to very specific situations in activity where there's physical activity, no indication of an apparition, a ghost, a haunting, or anything else just purely physical activity. And that could be sounds, actually we're talking about physical sounds, not just psychic sounds, but physical sounds. It can be movement of objects, breaking of objects, uh, tech, a recent, more recent trend has been the tech around you just starts screwing up. Sometimes even works when it's not plugged in. That's a whole right. different, different option. Uh, so you have all this physical activity and no indication of a discarnate or deceased person hanging around. And it tends to happen around or when a single person is present in the environment where this is going on. Um, there are family dynamic cases where it's harder to pick who's the individual agent who's causing it. But there's two potential causes we look for for these poltergeist agents. One is extraordinary stress. Obviously, there's something else in that person that allows them to be psychokinetic in that way. But there is extraordinary stress in that person's life that has just started up for some reason, uh, or that the, a smaller percentage, less than a third, we've tagged to neurological issues, such as epilepsy or epileptiform activity in the temporal lobes. That's another possibility, but often stress is connected in that some way there as well. See, and that's more why I was asking, uh, not necessarily for the paranormal aspect, but for the fact that human emotions can cause such changes in the environment. Yes. Uh, you know, it's something we all experience to some extent. Uh, we all have little stressors or big stressors. Mm -hmm. And you could have, you know, come start be, be doing work on your computer. I've certainly had this happen where I'm, I'm under a little pressure for whether it's work pressure or something else. And the computer's just simply not working. I learned a long time ago from actually someone in Silicon Valley at a help desk when I was having problems with my Apple IIc, this is back in the 80s, and a program doing things that it wasn't supposed to be doing, it couldn't possibly be doing, this was very simple. He basically told me, uh, asked me how I was feeling, and then when I told him I was really stressing under deadline, he says, turn off the computer, take a walk around the block, and then call me back. Turn it back on and call me back. And that uh, led to a conversation about that, them noticing people under stress. <laughs> having effects on their devices. And uh, that in itself was a really real eye-opener. I've talked to many people in Silicon Valley or, or in the computer industry about this, and this is not uncommon. That's fascinating. Um, but that's not to say, though, that there isn't potentially discarnate 
beings causing right. issues in, in a person's environment either. Right. But you usually have other indicators uh, okay. that there's somebody there. Uh, right. It's it's extraordinarily rare that a spirit or discarnate entity would actually be causing physical activity without something else happening. And in fact, the majority of apparitional, you know, ghostly experiences people have, there is no physical activity. Right. It's visual, it's auditory, it's olfactory, you know, you pick up on things. It seems that it sure looks like ghosts need to learn how to move things. It's not an automatic thing. You don't just suddenly die and learn the secrets of the universe. Um, just to paraphrase a colleague of mine, Charlie Tart, you know, uh, dying does not significantly improve your IQ. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or just because you're dead doesn't mean you're smart, you know? Yeah, I've, I've heard that as well. And, you know, I, I, my mistaken belief before, I thought when you die, you become completely enlightened. And you, yeah, you know the secrets of the universe and um, you just and maybe become... You Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe you do if you move to the other to whatever the other side is where that other, that other level of existence is the ghosts that people experience here i'm not talking about mediums now mm -hmm. the ghosts that the average person experiences here um the apparitions of the people the discarnates have not been to that to that existence in fact they're they're still here they're with us so and there uh, aren't there aren't that many of them no <laughs> do you mean is that when they call it earthbound yeah, some mediums will call that earthbound. Mm -hmm. Some will say stuck. Um, there's any number of terms that can be applied to that, but yeah, they're they're different. And some mediums will make the distinction between a ghost mm -hmm. that's somebody who's earthbound and a spirit that's someone they're speaking to on the other side or who's projecting themselves back from that other realm. Right. Okay. You know, and I'm just using again that language. Language it's is tough. faulty. It's tough. But I, I think yeah. some some individuals might relate more to the earthbound distinction. The poltergeist thing, I've heard even someone say that it's uh, sometimes they think it's children. So discarnate spirits that are children. Yeah, but, you know, there are experiences with children, you know, child apparitions. And again, there's a distinction between purely physical activity mm -hmm. um, and the kind of chaos to the, the thing is that's really interesting is that poltergeist cases when they're with physical activity are typically chaotic. Um, whereas with apparitions, when there is physical activity, it's very purposeful. Okay. And it and it seems almost in character with whoever that apparition happens to be. Oh, it, okay. So it's 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 rarely destructive. Now we have cases which seem to be apparitional connected. Uh, people have seen the apparition. There's physical activity. Physical activity is very minor. Uh, but the people have decided to ignore the ghost. And then after quite some time of being ignored, apparently the ghost throws a little temper tantrum to try to get your attention. So, um, you know, in that case, it could be, it could be a two-year-old. There's certainly evidence of that happening when they're alive, you know, or, alive. or a teenager, right? <laughs> or a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then, so again, I'm kind of going a little back and forth here again, back to the channeling. I, I actually, I'm very intrigued by the concept of a walk-in. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think in your book, you had said that you actually met someone who was a walk-in. Can you talk a bit yeah. about that? So the walk-in in the, in the channeling framework is that your soul, this is what was explained to me. Uh, a person has decided that they don't want to live here anymore <laughs> and they're not going to commit suicide, but they had to, they really, their life sucks. They don't want to live here anymore. Uh, and apparently that is enough to attract some entity from some other place. Um, 
often aliens of some kind. Really? Well, that's the yeah, that's what a number of walk-ins I met over the years were aliens, uh, mm. claimed to be aliens. And they what that happens is that alien switches spirit with you, so switches bodies with you. So the person I met first was I was actually on a, t a local t talk show. Um, I haven't put that one up on YouTube. I'm actually going to put it up on YouTube at some point. But uh, I was on a local talk show and it was all about channeling. My colleague, John Climo, was who had written a book, written the book on channeling. It's like the best book on channeling. It's called Channeling, John <laughs> Climo. And John um, had brought in a couple people, one uh, different kinds of channelers. Uh, that's actually where I met Kathy Reardon who I ended up working with for, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. uh, and the one woman who was a, a walk-in claimed that her, she was get she was, she didn't like her life. She reached out. And of course the person was speaking in third per, per, third person so, would say she didn't like her life. She reached out and I was having similar issues on my world in the Pleiades solar systems. So we switched places. No, actually, I'm sorry. She was not from the Pleiades. She was from a, the Andromeda galaxy. <laughs> Okay. Which is 2 million light years away, mind you. Right. Uh, and so she claimed that her personality, you know, that this was a different personality and this was experiencing life on earth for the first time because it was very, very different. And maybe that's a healthy thing for the person who then changes their outlook. But when they start claiming to be aliens, you don't know what to do with that. You know, people just don't want, know what to do with it. Otherwise she's per perfectly functional. And same with all the other walk people who call themselves walk-ins. They're perfectly functional people. They just decided that their life and their personality was not working for them. So they just changed. So two things come to mind. First of all, I actually didn't realize it was uh, a lot of cases were had to do with ETs. I thought it was more just, you know, spirit, a just a different person's soul comes in and takes over. And then the second thing that comes to mind, I mean, I don't doubt that any of this can be real. But the other part of it is dissociative identity disorder. You know, the problem with channeling, which comes right down to it, is there's no ID. Right. <laughs> so I can't accept that this person is really a spirit from, you know, somebody from the Andromeda galaxy. Right. Beside the fact that they can't describe, you know, this is the thing. I actually ask questions um, to this woman. Can you tell me more? Tell me about your world. Can you tell me? There was just like nothing. Zero. Um, there's no language that comes through. This is the problem with when Jay Z Knight was tra channeling Ram Ramtha, you know, the ancient yes. Atlantean spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, no information about Ramtha, uh, about Atlantis, that could be verified in any way, shape, or form. Not even the location, uh, not even approximately where it was, other than what people seem to think in the popular literature. So there, you end up with these situations where it's it's either a form of uh, DID, dissociative identity disorder, or it's something else in which a person puts aside their identity, basically is now playing a role. So it may not be deeply psychological, it may not be as, as deeply difficult to deal with as DID, but it could still be an issue where I just don't like my life at all, but I'm not going to commit suicide. I'm just going to be somebody different. That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. There's so many layers. And I think we all need to be very objective and very careful about getting the information, getting the evidential information, if that's even possible. And that's where we get to mediumship, because we do get incredibly specific 
factual information, which granted in today's world, you possibly can get there if they're, the deceased's Facebook page was not taken down. Right. Uh, <laughs> but we also have situations in which you get kind of an emotional context. Mm-hmm. Um, my exp- I had an experience with a medium from Ireland who I've worked with many times, Sandra O'Hara, who's one of the mediums featured in Leslie Keene's book, Surviving Death. And Sandra, um, I was, I knew about Sandra from this friend of mine who was bringing her over from Ireland. But besides coming up with factual information, um, one of my colleagues was there with me, and he was an he was relatively skeptical about life after death. He had been told about the spirit guide that he had by some medium somewhere, and he didn't even know what to make of that. And Sandra connected, Sandra, and he never told any. He didn't even tell tell me about it. Right. until after but sandra picked up on she she picked up on that right away and said that's not really a spirit guide here's here's what you were told and here's what really is going on and it was some relative of his it really connected with him in a different way for me her first bringing through my father had passed away and mm-hmm. um several years before and she brought through my father and also my mentor martin caden something she could have learned about from my book, Mind Over Matter, and some other stuff that I read that I was really close with Marty. Uh, Marty was a science fiction and science writer who could do PK. But what she came up with for both of them was stuff that no one else knew about their previous interaction because um, they, they had known each other like 30 years before, like probably in the 19, early 1960s. And people knew that my dad had met Marty, but not what the interactions were. And I heard that from Marty and never really talked about that or I heard it from my dad. So there was that element that came through. But there were other personality variables that the way my father, describing the way my father behaved in certain situations and his emotional state, and the same with Marty and the interaction between the two, that just made me, made it much more convincing to me, not just from facts and figures, but from an emotional place as well. And, and that's the thing, because I've had the same experience. I've had very astounding mediumship reads that mm-hmm. just really shifted me because it's then I was in a position where I, I thought I'm a fool if I don't believe or or have now an, a sense of a knowing of the greater reality, let's call it. Right. Right. And the other thing I was going to point out earlier was that I actually went to different mediums before, and sometimes they give me slightly different information about the same sure. thing. But a lot of the time, so freaky, I get the same information from three mediums. And I just think that's just evidential right there as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a it's a really interesting thing when that happens. Um, and in fact, I've talked to people who have been to like a dozen mediums and they're they keep going to different mediums because they want to hear something specific that is unlikely to ever come from this relative of theirs that they're trying to contact. Right. You know, they want they want to hear what they want to hear, not what their what their mother wants to tell them. And what ends up happening is the mediums all say, your mother says X, Y, and Z. Um, I know that's not what you want to hear, but that's the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she keeps going to different mediums because she she doesn't want to hear X, Y, and Z. She wants to hear something different from her mother because she's looking for advice from her mother on a specific issue, not that her mother actually exists. It's partly, I mean, in some respects, that's partly also not letting go of your grief. 
Uh, that's one yeah. of the things, you know, I'm, I'm president of the Forever Family Foundation, which is a foundation that supports the work of spirit mediums and the family grieving process. And we certify, we test and certify uh, mediums to be evidential. And we have, we have uh, it's a free membership. People can join just by going to the website. And it's having seen a number of, of sessions with different mediums or evidential mediums, gallery readings and individual readings. It's really clear that there is, you know, in a large group, so we might have a hundred people, there may be one or two people who just cannot let it go. Um, most people, they just want to know their family members. Okay. They want to hear, hear back from them. They find it interesting they, that it helps them pass their grief. But some people, because uh, there was one woman in particular who was driving a car when she got into it, she got distracted, got into a serious accident. Her son got killed. Her son's best friend got, um, physically disabled and she felt guilty i mean it was her, it was her fault she was feeling guilty and the mediums and she had three readings over this weekend the mediums all had brought her son through and said mom we forgive you it's not your fault you know it's you know there was something else going on and just on and on and on and she just wouldn't let that go so she needed serious we we're trying to get her into other kinds of counseling because that she didn't need counseling for grief she needed counseling for her or issues of guilt. Yes. And that's very powerful. That's a powerful story. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that's something that's something your foundation does deal with often, right? We do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, med mm -hmm. the mediums do deal with that quite a bit. And it, it's something that um, we are continuing going to continue to deal with. We do, we do grief retreats, but even at the grief retreats, you have someone who it's not really about grief for them. It's about something else. And right. uh, so we have to push them towards the kind of counseling that they really need. Mm -hmm. And you're also um, the founder and director of the Office of Paranormal Investigation. That's still ongoing? Well, we're not active these days, although um, this, this, that was started as an outgrowth of the John F. Kennedy University's parapsychology program when that program ended, because people were calling, calling us at the university for investigations and help. And so we started. Um, that the OPI for to cover that. And I've had different folks, mostly uh, former students of mine are the investigators, although I have some colleagues who are in our network as well. The problem today is that because of the TV shows, there's been a proliferation of hobbyist and amateur ghost hunter groups out there. And they seem to get, you know, the cases. We rarely, every case calls. I mean, I, I can't even tell you uh, the last time. I think I've had three case calls in the last year. Um, I get emails from people in different parts of the country, unfortunately, sometimes in parts of the country that we have no investigators on my network. Uh, so that makes it a little bit difficult, but it's, it's a little different world out there now. Yes, and some of the cases, some of the cases I get back, honestly, uh, in the local area here in the Bay Area, they've had a local ghost hunting group come in. The ghost hunting group did what they do on TV. They gathered their evidence, played the EVP, told them the place was haunted, and then didn't help them. And that's a major issue um, mm -hmm. that most of these groups follow whatever they see on TV as if that's the way you do it. And television is television. You know, that's what's like uh, watching cops and going into law enforcement with no training, except watching cops. <laughs> and then finally, if you can tell me about the chocolatiering. Sure. I'm a food guy and a wine guy here in the Bay Area and got into chocolate in the late 90s when the chocolate world uh, came to the U.S. thanks to a local chocolatier called Scharfenberger. 
and dis I discovered good chocolate. I'd always liked chocolate, but I didn't realize what good chocolate tasted like. And so I really took to learning about it because I, I do that sometimes with, with kind of as a hobby. And I ended up doing chocolate tastings and starting thinking about writing a possible book for a publisher that I was involved with uh, for one of my books. Uh, she ended up selling her business, so and they were not interested in the book. But I um, took a chocolatier course uh, to become a professional chocolatier as part of that interest uh, a number of years ago and started making chocolate. Uh, so I haven't been making much in the last couple of years. We're really, I wasn't able to put the kind of energy and marketing into selling the chocolate, uh, the production that way. But uh, I still do chocolate tastings, guided chocolate tastings. I'm working on a way to do them virtually and get the chocolate to the, the right chocolate to the right people. Um, and uh, someday I might write the book, finish writing that book. Right. It's and there. and the website's hauntedbychocolate.com? Hauntedbychocolate.com. That's correct. One other thing, too, I just, just uh, with two friends of mine, we just published our first paranormal mystery novel last month. Near Death. Is that right? Near death. That's yeah. right. A rainy day investigation. Right. <laughs> Jennifer Day is a parapsychologist. Nate Rainey is a cop who had a near-death experience. And this is the first in a series. Our next book will be out, hopefully, I think we're, we're shooting for May, April or May. Uh, we're in the midst of writing it right now. So this is the first in a series. It's up on Amazon. We've gotten great reviews, including one from a wonderful medium named Laura Lynn Jackson. So I'm Oh, I'm happy. familiar with her. Yeah, no, that's terrific. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, thank you, Lloyd. Thank you so much for speaking with me today and enlightening everyone about parapsychology. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Lloyd Auerbach. For more on Lloyd and to purchase his new book, please go to foreverfamilyfoundation.org and Lloyd Auerbach on amazon.com. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. For more information and to send comments and questions, please visit lifecontinuing.com. And be sure to join me next time to continue this conversation about life continuing.